tonight, you probably heard, but the topic tonight is badass Bible women. So can I, can I hear a woohoo? Woohoo! Um, did anybody here wonder, like, really, are there badass Bible women? Did that, do you, do you even wonder, like, who are they? I've never heard of that before. Has that ever been a surprise to you? Um, well, there are women in the Bible that are really powerful. I want to say, and particularly as we're going through the book of Judges, because what we've been doing is doing an overview of the Old Testament to kind of see who God is and see who is, and, and understand his love and how he fights for people. And there, you know, I was thinking about going through the book of Judges chronologically, but then I was thinking, it's kind of cool. Some of the things that are in Judges is that there are some women that God really worked powerfully in. In a time and in a culture that women were extremely oppressed, the book of Judges was written over 3,000 years ago. And women were treated like they were like, like nobody. Like women did not have rights. Women weren't valued, really. Um, all, you know, through thousands of years of history. But particularly in this time, you even see in another part later in Judges, there's a situation where they don't even name the guys. It's a Levite guy, and um, he's traveling to go find his concubine because she left him and to go bring her back. And he's visiting with another, you know, guy he meets in town to travel. And the guy welcomes him and says, oh, come into my home. And some guys show up at the house uh, and say that they want to have sex with uh, the Levite. And so the Levite and the man that's hosting him actually offer these men the concubine and the, and the other guy's daughter. The men rape the women all night and leave the concubine dead at the doorstep of the house. Now, it goes to show you that this was thought to be okay. On what universe would you think that this is okay for a man to say, oh, don't rep, rape my guest, this other man, you can have my daughter instead and just throw her out the front door. It shows you that culturally during this time, women were extremely disregarded. But I mean to tell you is we're gonna look at this section in Judges and throughout scripture, that was never God's will. It has never been the will of God that women are less than men or that women aren't equal. Women are different, but, they, but God has never seen them as lesser human beings. God, and it shows, when we look at this, at how powerfully, back in a time that women were treated like this, that God could still work mightily um, in people that believed him. Throughout the book of Judges, because we're going to do badass Bible men next week, what's kind of interesting is that many of the people that God raised up to lead Israel during this time were people that had great disadvantages. So even the guys, you know, you think, of course, we understand back in this time how a woman would have a disadvantage. But many of the other people that were judges that were leading Israel came from, like, one guy was a son of a prostitute, another guy was a left-handed guy. I mean, there's, like, in, over and over and over again, you see, even in the men, you see people 
that the world would probably disregard or overlook, and God raised them up because they were people of faith that trusted him to do powerful and amazing things. So that's one of the things that we're going to uh, be looking at. You know, I think, too, in terms of the intensity of this, women are you know, somewhere around half of the human beings. So who do you think might be behind keeping women down? Satan? Do you know what I'm saying? Women are powerful. Women, throughout the Bible and through even history, women have done amazing things for God's purposes. So I absolutely believe, it's, as you see, that it's not God's will, but that it's Satan behind this. Even today, how, I'm telling you, what breaks my heart is that there are not women ministers in the church very much. I've been a part of a congregation of a group of pastors, you know, where we met once a month, and it was awesome. I learned a lot. But I was in meeting after meeting where there were a couple hundred people there, and there were no women pastors there. As a matter of fact, the people speaking, because it's so unheard of that a woman would be a pastor, they kept using language like the pastor and his wife, the pastor and his wife. Because... This is today. This is in modern times. If this isn't spiritual, guys, seriously. Because how much do women have to contribute and can make a difference in the kingdom of God and kicking the devil's ass? Amen? Amen. Amen. So I want to, you know, I want to look at this from a spiritual perspective. Uh, and that's why I chose to, I thought it just would be kind of fun instead of going chronologically through the book of Judges, but I'm going to give you an overview, that I'd hit, you know, well, Deborah in particular, who is my favorite, per, you know, not my favorite person in the Bible, but definitely my favorite woman in the Bible, because um, it's pretty exciting to see what she accomplished. But then there's a couple of other kind of smaller players that, that you don't hear a lot about that did amazing things. Uh, just in a short little period in the book of Judges. So instead, I just sort of split it up to, he to hit badass Bible women, badass Bible men. Even in the translation of the Bible, if you can s understand the spiritual battle and the biases, because, you know, the Old Testament's written in Hebrew, New Testament was translated from Greek. Um, the, the word, just to give you, for instance, in Pro if any of you guys have read Proverbs thir 31, the section that says, who can find a virtuous woman for her price is far above rubies? If anybody's familiar with that section of scripture. The translators, the, the, the word is kail, and it means, the Hebrew word means army, might, strength, forces, power, man of valor. The only place it's translated virtuous is about a woman. Talk about a bias in the scripture. There were people behind, like, why would you do that? Why would, in every other place in the whole Bible, you're use, these are the other translations for that word. And then here in Proverbs 31, she's virtuous. Oh, yes, she's just so virtuous. You get kind of, I don't know what picture you guys get, but, you know, little shrinking violet in a corner someplace, not... It doesn't sound at all, does it? Virtuous, does that sound like army, might, strength, forces, power, man of valor, it's even like translated someplace, you know? So you can kind of see 
the bias here. Um, so before we get into the Deborah, I want to kind of just give a little overview of where what's led up to this. If you remember, last week we talked about Joshua, and Joshua, after Moses died, took over, and he brought Israel into the promised land, and he had a lot of faith. And what happens is he dies, uh, and they, they split up all the land among the tribes. And so in Judges, we pick up after Joshua dies. And what happens, and what you're going to see through the book of Judges, is that, well, Joshua dies, and really right away, actually let's even go there, in Judges 2, verse 2, you kind of see where people's um, heads go, 2-2. Two, two, and it says, uh, in verse 2, it says, And you will not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you sh- will break down their altars. Yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? Now I tell you that I will not drive them out before you. They will be thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a snare to you. So God had told them when they come into this land to tear down all the altars to the false gods. They didn't do it. And God said, you disobeyed. This is going to be a snare to you. And then what happens is you see through the judges that Israel keeps getting swept away. And it says that um, after after Joshua dies, that they start worshiping Baal, which is the god of the Canaanites. He's sort of a fertility god. And they believed in sacred prostitution and child sacrifice. So that's kind of, you know, not my kind of God. Um, You know, child sacrifice, actually killing children, you know, giving them to their God. So this, there was a pretty good reason, I would say, to destroy the, the idols that represented that God. But the people of Israel kept getting swept away by Baal and worshiping Baal, and then they'd get in all kinds of messes and be dominated by other people, and their lives would be miserable, and then they'd cry out to God, and what would happen is, over and over again, God would send them a judge, because in the time of judges, God was saying, God had been saying all along, I'm your king, you do not need a king, and they were saying, we want a king like the Gentiles, we want a king, and God was saying, no, 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 you don't want a king, because they're going to take all your money, take your women, take advantage of you, etc., I want to rule, I'm the ruler, and I'm your king. And so in the book of Judges, we have, it was people that walked with God, that had faith, that rose up to, uh, to oversee and to lead Israel. And so some of the people, there's a whole lot of judges. Some of them are not really discussed a whole lot. There's Othniel, and uh, that's the first one that God sends. And then he, he um, had the spirit of the Lord in him. He led Israel in battle. Then they had 40 years of peace until he died. Then they had Ehud, which, who was a left-handed man. And it's kind of funny. He um, <laughs> went to the king of Moab, and he's, who was a really fat man, and he stuck a sword in his belly. And the sword went in so deeply that it just swallowed up the sword and, with the fat. And he died. It was uh, kind of fun, funny. Uh, so anyway, he was the, <laughs> the next guy, and then Israel after him uh, had peace for 80 years. Then there's Shamgar, who killed 600 Philistines with an ox goad. And then we come to chapter 4 and verse 1, where we're going to pick up with Deborah. But in between, every time one of these judges died, Israel would get go kind of crazy, worship other gods, and get in a mess. So in... Judges 4, in verse 1, it says, After Ehud died, the Israelites once again did evil in the, sight, in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan. 
who reigned in Hazar. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in, I don't know how to say that. Anyway, but <laughs> because he had 900 iron chariots and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years, they cried to the Lord for help. So here we've got um, Jabin, who's the king of Canaan, and the guy that runs his army is Sisera. And so finally, Again, Israelites are in a mess, and so they cry to the Lord. And in verse 4, it says, Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Labadoth, was leading Israel at that time. Now, she held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites came to her to have their disputes decided. So there's a lot right here in just this little bit. For one... Deborah is the only person that was one of the judges that is called a prophetess. And so a prophetess is a ministry of God where God puts his spirit on somebody to, and, and, you know, it's, it's people that God really trusts to speak for him. Because if God's going to give a message, it's, he wants to make sure it's delivered as he says it and not, you know, muddled up. So, um, so it says that Deborah is a prophetess. A prophetess in the Bible, you think of Samuel, all of these prophets that you think of, the prophets would walk in because they'd speak a word for God. And a lot of times it was kind of confrontational. It was kind of telling people, you know, you have, you know, walked away from God, blah, blah, blah. And so a lot of times when a prophet would walk in, people would tremble and be like, oh, you know, it's the prophet. Um, and so you think about just the fact that there were a number of prophetesses in the Bible. A lot, they, they're mentioned frequently, and yet how often do people even speak about these people? So she's not only a prophetess, but she is leading. And I got to say, you know what's kind of cool? She's married. Now, in this culture, think about this. You're in charge of Israel. Women are thought of as nothing, and you have a husband. How cool must her husband have been to be supportive about that? He must have been kind of brave himself, you know, in this culture to be getting that she had the spirit of God on her, that he would support this. Um, Because that's the only way that it really could have happened is if, you know, he was behind her. It would certainly be difficult. But people clearly saw that she was walking with God and that she was a prophetess. So people came to her for wisdom and so she was, you know, listening to people, and everybody came because that's a good idea. Somebody was walking with God to take your difficulties, and so she decided their disputes. Then in verse 6 it said, She sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kedesh and Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun and lead the way to Mount Tabor. I will lure Sisera the commander of Jabin's army with his chariots and his troops to the Kishron River and give him into your hands. And so this is kind of cool too because this is quite a revelation. What if God told you all this? You know, go tell, you know, Barak that um, this is what God said. But so it's kind of really bold. And then in verse 6, Barak said to her, if you go with me, I'll go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. So <laughs> there's a couple of things. Sometimes you could say, well, that's kind of wussy, really. Like you need a girl to go with you uh, into battle. But in another way, I mean, you know, uh, it, there's a part of this that shows he had some lack of faith in God, that God would take care of him. But on another hand, at least you, the guy gets that 
that Deborah was really walking with God, and so the sense that if he had somebody that was walking with God with him, that things would, you know, could go better. So Deborah says, very well, Deborah says, I will go with you, but because of the way you're going about this, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will hand Sisera over to a woman. So Deborah went to, uh, with Barak to Kedesh, where he summoned Zebulun and Naphtali. 10,000 men followed him, and Deborah also went with him. So this is kind of... Um, a big deal. Uh, so Deborah, and all, again, I got to think like how cool that her husband is going, okay, cool, you can go into battle <laughs> to lead this, you know, this army of, of people to go after Sisera, this powerful, uh, you know, the, the head of the whole army for, uh, uh, and then it says, let's see, um, let's go down. So we see definitely, okay. Let's go down to um, verse 14. What happens is Haber, Haber the, the Kenite, is somebody that Haber was an ally during the time of Moses, or their people were ally, you know, allies during the time of Moses. And it says that he um, told Sisera all of the plans in terms of Barak and what they were going to do with the battle. And so, um, so what happens is... Uh, they're apprised of it. And then in verse 14, it says, Then Deborah said to Barak, Go, this is the day that the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down to Mount Tabor, followed by 10,000 men. At Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all of his chariots and the army by the sword. And Sisera abandoned his chariot and fled on foot. But Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as whatever that is. And all the troops of Sisera fell by the sword, not a man left. It says later during the Song of Deborah that, that God caused a storm that, that, because the, the place where Sisera went, because they had all the chariots, was flat land. And so Barak was coming from Mount Tabor down. Um, and so partly it talks about in the song that God stirred up a storm that helped, uh, helped them defeat um, help them defeat uh, the army. And then it says in verse 17, Sisera, however, fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Canite, because there were friendly relations between Jabin, king of Hazar, and the clan of Heber the Canite. So, so this tells you that, so he's going to the guy that, that told what Barak's plans were, and he runs into his wife's tent. Now, you don't go into a woman's tent. That's just not, you know, done. Uh, unless you're the husband. And so in verse 18, Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, come, my Lord, come right in. Don't be afraid. And he offered her, and, and he entered her tent, so she put a covering over him. And normally, it's a custom um, in, in this time and in this place in the East where if somebody comes into your home, you would protect them with, with everything. Like if you are hosting you would protect with all that's within you. And so for her to say, come on into my tent, and it would seem like the perfect hiding place because there shouldn't be a man in her tent, so nobody's going to, you know, Barak is certainly probably not going to come uh, talk to jail to see if Sisera was there. And then it says um, in verse 19, I'm thirsty, he said, please give me some water. She opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him up. Stand in the doorway of the tent, he told her. If someone comes by and asks you if anyone's here, say no. 
But Jael, Heber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. She drove the peg through his temple into the ground, and he died. Well, you'd think he'd die if she put a tent stake through his head. So, <laughs> I mean, this is pretty, this is, this is courageous. This is like, for, it, it's just like, for one, it was her husband that's the one that gave away the information about Barack's plans anyway, who kind of went away from their allegiance to Israel. And so for her to take a stand against her husband's position to lure Sisera in and say, come on in, I'll take care of you. And then he's like, he goes, yeah, stand by the door and I'm going to sleep. And he's taking a nap. And how she has the courage and the boldness to go decide to grab a tent stake and drive it through his head while he's asleep uh, and kill him. But she, I mean, this is a really powerful guy that everybody was afraid of. And then um, Barak came by in pursuit of Sisera and Jael went out to meet him. Come, she said, I will show you the man you're looking for. So she went in with her, and there lay Sisera with the tent peg through his temple dead. On that day, God subdued Jabin, the Canaanite king, before the Israelites, and the hand of the Israelites grew stronger and stronger against Jabin, the Canaanite king, until they destroyed him. So this is pretty um, fabulous as well. Um, we're going, and then it talks about the song of Deborah, uh, but this is like, talk about making a difference between Deborah and Jael, like, you know, this is in a military kind of situation too, so it's pretty wild. Uh, let's go down to um, chapter 9 and verse 50. So after Deborah, they now have 40 years of peace as a result of this, and then Gideon comes along, which we're going to talk about next week when we talk about badass Bible men. And I want to just do one more because it's kind of cool on um there's a woman that they don't name at all and this is another one that just makes a huge difference in this little teeny uh section in judges in chapter 9 in verse 50 what happens is gideon who's amazing and we're going to hear about next week he what he accomplishes and his walk with god are incredible but he has a son that's kind of the opposite is uh, Abimelech that is so not walking with God he's he's evil he's just horrible and so he winds up this is Gideon's son and he decides he should be king even though God's saying no no you don't need a king I'm your king he says I should be king and so he kills 70 of his brothers in order to have power and it's just a really gory thing where he actually kind of sacrifices them on a rock. It's just, you know, 70 brothers. This is pretty dark. You can imagine, you know, to do this to your own family and to that degree of slaughter that that's pretty dark. And so there's one son that kind of survives. Jotham lives and he sends a curse and says that Abimelech and the people of Shechem, because the people of Shechem were the ones that were backing Abimelech, would destroy each other, that they would turn on each other. And that's kind of a law of life too. It's kind of funny how we think, you know, we see somebody burn someone else and we think they're going to be great to us. It's like, <laughs> so um, anyway, they wind up turning on each other, just like the curse that Jotham has. Uh, and then another man, Gael, rises up to get the people of Shechem to rally against Abimelech. 
And so they fight a whole bunch of cities and take them down, and they're burning like every person. This is an awful guy, and he's going to cities and burning them down, a thousand people, women and children, everything, burning them down, going city to city. And then he gets to this one city in uh, Judges 9, runs into a little girl uh, in verse 50. You see, it says, Next Abimelech went to Trebez and besieged it and captured it. Inside the city, however, was a strong tower to which all the men and women, all the people of the city fled. They locked themselves in and climbed up on the tower roof. Abimelech went to the tower and stormed it. But as he approached the entrance to the tower to set it on fire, a woman dropped an upper millstone on his head and cracked his skull. <laughs> Sorry, I, I, thought, I think it's funny. <laughs> He has a powerful king. He's like killing thousands of people and taking cities. And so he's, he's trying to storm a city. And on a tower, a woman drops a millstone and cracks a skull. And then hurriedly, he calls for his armor bearer, draw your sword and kill me so that they can't say a woman killed him. <laughs> so his servant ran through him and he died. And when the Israelites saw that Abimelech was dead, they went home. Thus God repaid the wickedness that Abimelech had done to his father by murdering his 70 brothers. God also made the men of Shechem pay for all their wickedness. The curse of Jotham, son of Jeroboam, which is Gideon, came on them. So anyway, you know, this is just a little piece. There's definitely other women in the Bible. We're doing the book of Judges, but what's amazing, not just with the women, but what we're going to see next week as well, is to see how God works in people of faith, whether they have disadvantages or not. You know, it's, it's faith. It's people trusting God and opening their hearts to God. Doesn't, God doesn't look at things the way that the world looks at things in the surface. God looks at the heart um, and honors that. So, and it's just amazing in the time of the Bible when women were so oppressed. This is over 3,000 years ago that this book was written. And you can see by the treatment of the concubine and the daughter, the disregard that people had for women. But Deborah was a woman of faith and stood up and trusted God and God worked mightily. She was a prophetess of the Lord that was hearing from God and God was able to do that. God is able to work in any person that takes a stand and, work and, and wants to walk with him. It takes humility. It takes willingness. And that's what Deborah had. Deborah had the willingness and the humility to walk with God. And, and God did mighty, mighty works through her. I want to kind of take you through as, you know, now in the book of Judges, because in this um, series that we're doing, because we have a little bit of time is, do you guys have the handout of the time overview? I thought we could kind of go through that because we've been chugging along for a little while because part of this is getting a picture of God's love and how he fights for people over and over and over again people have turned away from God you know like repeatedly throughout history but God's love you know God's love and mercy it says he's slow to anger and that he's patient and you see that you see it in creation if you look at this that you guys nobody has a handout huh the, I don't know I just thought everybody had the little packet. Um, no. <laughs> okay, we have them at the front. It doesn't look like anybody took any packets. So anyway, well, here's my little, I was thinking we could go through this chart today. But um, you see in the beginning with God, when he created Adam and Eve, the goal was that God loved 
people and wanted a family and wanted somebody to give his love with, to have a relationship, just the way a good parent would want a child to have a relationship. God wanted paradise for, for people. He created people. He wanted life to be perfect and wonderful and to have a relationship and commune. And you see that Adam decides to not, you know, trust God. And so, and so starts, the devil comes along and tempts him and talks him into, oh, God doesn't really want to make you happy. You know, God wants to deprive you. You know, you can't have the tree of the, of the garden. Now, what a twisted way. The tr- everybody kind of looks at that tree in the garden and says, oh, why did God put it there? As if God put it there on purpose to try and trick people into, oh, we just want to test you, you know, to see if you'll do God's will. God didn't, there's nothing in the Bible that says that, that God put that tree there to test people. You know, the, the tree, we don't even know if it's, a, you know, uh, literally a tree or not, and that's not really even the point. The point of what God was saying in paradise is that God made all of paradise that's so perfect and wonderful and great, and God just said, if you eat this tree, you will surely die. It's no different than God making gravity. You can't jump off of a 20-foot, you know, 20-story high building and live. And would you think of jumping off of a building and saying, why did you do that, God? Couldn't you have changed the laws of gravity for me? You know, it's not God's fault. And so it wasn't God's fault that Adam chose to do something when, when God said, or just eat, it's the same thing of eating something poisonous. We, how ridiculous, like, don't eat that, it's poisonous, you'll die. Would we really think it's God's fault if you ate something poisonous and died when God said, don't eat that? That sounds crazy, doesn't it? But yet so many times people take that. So we see the original intention is that God wanted people to be happy and have a relationship with him. And so we see as, after the fall, then we see that what happens is people get, it says, The people get so far away from God that the thoughts of their heart were only evil continually. If you think of evil, and what if people on the whole earth only were evil continually, that would be bad. Like Jeffrey Dahmer's everywhere, if you think about that. Uh, It's creepy. So then God says, it says that God, it breaks his heart to see all that anguish, because that's not what he wanted for people. And so he says, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to just get rid of this, this is too much pain, and sends the flood. But Noah loves God, believes God, trusts God, and God rescues, rescues Noah and his whole family. And then we see from that, Noah's doing great, and then they build the Tower of Babel where they decide, we're going to make our way all the way to God, and then God separates the people with the languages. You see that on your handout. Next thing that happens in history after that is you've got Abraham. Abraham is born. He's somebody that walks with God, has a lot of faith. Um, he's got uh, two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. Isaac is the promise of, of the Lord. Um, and Abraham, it says, is the father of faith. Abraham and, uh, has Isaac. Isaac then has Jacob and Esau. Jacob's the heel snatcher, it says, the two twins. Esau's the hairy guy. Jacob's the one that, <laughs> that has the faith and loves God. Esau despises his birthright. Um, and then Jacob has a bunch of sons. One of them is Joseph. Joseph, his brothers sell him into slavery. He goes to Egypt. It's horrible. It's sad. He's in Egypt. Um, and then God redeems it and brings him into all kinds of power with Pharaoh, and he's able to save his family and reconcile with his brothers. So it's pretty amazing in that. 
And then from there, we see that they stuck around in Egypt too long and wound up becoming slaves. And then Moses uh, comes along and says, let, God says, let my people go. You all saw the movie. There's the Ten Commandments. And they leave Egypt and the slavery. And God is trying to take them into the promised land. But they don't have faith, so, and they're complaining, complaining, complaining. So they wind up wandering around in the desert for 40 years for nothing. And so finally... Uh, all those people die, and Joshua, who has faith, is able to take them into the promised land. And so here they are in the wonderful promised land, and they've got the tribes, have all got their land, and then this is the time of the judges. So I, I just wanted to, we haven't really done a little review. Sometimes it's hard to put these, pe- these things in place in terms of how they all happen, but the, the message that you see throughout is that God is patient and fighting for people, and he's going, you know, and over and over and over again, he's fighting to have a relationship with each and every one of us. And then you see that sometimes people are stubborn and resistant and want to go their own ways and bring all kinds of heartache on themselves. We do that all the time individually. It's kind of a battle in terms of, okay, do we walk with God where God wants to take us, or are we fighting against where God's trying to lead us? And so... In the, the ongoing book of Judges next week, we'll be continuing with badass men in the Bible. So let me pray. Heavenly Father, I come before you with a great heart of thanksgiving for your goodness and for your love. I can't believe how patient you are and that you never give up on any one of us, that you are continually loving us and fighting for us over and over again. I thank you for your mercy and... Um, And just help us to walk with you and to not fight you so much and to trust that where you're taking us is good and that our own plans aren't nearly as good as your plans, that your plans are good and loving, Lord. Anyway, I pray for these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Share that with you. Uh, There's a lot going on in terms of persecution of Christianity. And uh, he's been willing to share. So we're really blessed and honored to have uh, Nader with us tonight. And he's going to come up up and share. All right, let's give him a hand. My name is Nader Tadros. I'm uh, born and raised in Egypt, Cairo. I uh, actually lived about 15 minutes from the pyramids. Uh, <coughs> I hope you excuse my uh, uh, accent and uh, don't get distracted by my uh, accent. And let's... Uh, talk a little bit about uh, what I think is a very important aspect nowadays. Um, First of all, I gave my life to Jesus Christ probably before any of you was born on the (coughs) 29th of November, 1969. And since then, I've been with Jesus, know him, uh, walked with him, and I think I made the best decision of my life at that day. Uh, <coughs> before I talk about anything, I was I had a couple of obstacles that I want to share with you. I told my I talked to myself and I said, why would I talk to those people about Egypt? They they're not interested. They never been there. And most probably will never be there. So, uh, what is the reason? And I think the reason first that uh, we as Christians are one of the one body of Jesus Christ. And if we're suffering something in Egypt, then you guys have to know about it and pray for us. At the same time, I think we as Egyptians 
have the responsibility to tell you about what's going on. Because if you see a friend of yours or a brother with a truck coming fast about to hit him and you don't tell him, then that's a, that's a big problem. You have to let them know. And then they decide if you want to stay or move out of the way. Uh, <coughs> I'd like to talk a little bit about, introduce a little bit about what is the Islamic pr uh, belief. I know uh, it will come to your mind, especially when you guys are very interested about the human rights and uh, freedom of speech, and say, well, uh, it's a freedom, it's, it's, uh, they're free to believe whatever they want. There's nothing wrong with what they believe, as long as this is what they agree on and they, what they believe about. I don't think this is right, especially when you have somebody that his uh, goals is probably kill you, kill your kids, destroy your family. You cannot come and say, well, this is a free country. It's okay that he believes whatever he wants to believe. No. At this point, it's not okay. You have to understand. You have to know what, why does this guy want to do that. And you have to stand in front of him and know what is the problem. Otherwise, we'd let all the uh, inmates and the prisoners get out of prison because most of them, what they do is they're planning to kill somebody or kill somebody or whatever. So if it's, if, if it's okay, then we don't need prisoners. Actually, Islam started, came uh, 600 years after Christ. That means it's been for 1,400 years. The prophet is called Muhammad. I'll give you some highlights about how th what they believe in and some highlights about the prophet. The prophet Muhammad was born four years after his dad was died. Was died. Uh, to Arabs, this is a a huge problem that need explanation. We don't get any explanation. Uh, Islam is totally different than other religion. It's not like every other religion. We don't have any problem with Jews. I personally like them so much. <laughs> we don't have any problems with uh, uh, Hindus, Buddhists. Those people are peaceful people. People that, that worship their God, whoever he is, without interfering with me, no hard feelings with me, no bad plans for me. I don't have anything against those people. But when it comes to Islam, I have a problem with them. Because the problem is that what they have says that God, their Lord, told them that infidels has to be killed. God will love you. God will appreciate what you do if you kill one of them, if you take one of their wives, if you steal, you steal their money, if you rape their kids. God would bless you and would be very happy with you. 
What I'm saying is not words like rumors or things like that. I read all, everything, every word I say from their book, which is called the Quran, and from what they call the Hadith, which is every word the Prophet said. So they have two basic legs for Islam, which is Quran and Hadith, which is what the Prophet said. And this stuff is written very clearly. You can read it very clearly. That if you work for, for a Christian and he doesn't want to turn and become Muslim, that's okay, you can steal his money. God will really love you for that. It's okay, you can rape his daughter. God will really appreciate what you're doing. That's why I'm concerned about it. That's why we have to know what they're doing. Why are they doing that? It's a totally different story from other religions that, that have their own God, pray to him, and we don't have any problem with that. This one, we have a serious problem with that because the, teach, the teachings are different than anything else. The prophet said, I was ordered. This is one of the uh, uh, verses in the Quran. I was ordered to kill whoever do not believe in God and me as a prophet. He was ordered to do that. It's not an option. He's ordered to do that. There is a bunch of other verses in Quran about this matter that, that they're ordered, that they have the right to do it. Then if they don't do it, then this is a mistake. This is, uh, um, they're not doing what's, what they're supposed to do. And that's why it is, it's, a, it's very dangerous to think about them from the point of view of uh, uh, freedom of speech and freedom of belief and uh, why don't we give them their space? They have the right to think whatever they want. No, no, they don't have the right to think whatever they want because this right will conflict with your right, with my right, with everybody else's right. In a small, very small comparison, you know what, what the Germans did with the Jews? They killed probably six million of them, burned. But still, we don't find one of the Jews have himself wrapped with bombs and, and blowing up a cafeteria while peace people sitting there. Do we see that? No. The Christian, we have been uh, prosecuted by the Romans for years and years, millions of people died, but still, we don't go to Rome and blow up a school full of kids. This is totally different teachment. It's, it's not the same. Please understand, it's not the same. The reason I'm saying that is you in the States have a big misunderstanding. And I, I, I don't know if I can talk all the way up to the president or not. He thinks that he can make them love you. They will not love you. Believe me, they will not love you no matter what you do. They'll take your money and hate you. They'll take your kids, kill them, and hate you. There is no way because you're competing with their God. This is what their God is telling them to do. So you have to get to this point. You have to understand this point. You have to understand that you're sending money to people so that they can kill your brothers in Egypt. 
Prosecution in Egypt is every day. Yesterday, just yesterday, I, re I read on one of our local internet uh, news, news, they knew one of the guys was Muslim and became Christian. They, they had him tied in a tree and was stoned until death. That was just yesterday. Yesterday only, an ultimatum was given to all Christians in Sinai. They have to leave Sinai in 48 hours. Otherwise, there is no guarantee they can, they can live. See, prosecution there is great. I mean, people are suffering there. And it feels so bad that our brothers and sisters in the United States do not understand and don't share with us. I don't want to say it would support those people. But in fact, they support those people. Give them money. They give them arms. And actually, the, the, the foreign minister came to celebrate the brotherhood winning the elections in Egypt. So the fact that you have to know, it's, it's totally different. Uh, Islam is totally different than anything else. Don't mix up between Islam and other religious and other uh, uh, things that people believe in. This is totally different story. I just wanted to, I know that, that, that uh, you don't have a lot of time, but uh, <coughs> I just wanted to make sure that at least we need your support to Egypt. Pray to the people that are there. If you are there and listen to what's happening there, and the people talk to you, you really would feel so bad. I mean, those people, especially poor people, uh, are suffering so much. The kids are, are kidnapped starting from, 12 years old, they're taken away. 1,500 small uh, girls were kidnapped from Egypt last six months. Christian kids were kidnapped last six months. They don't know where they are. They just come back after five or six months, and guess what? They wear the galabeya, they're married, and they have kids. And the kids are called Muhammad and Ahmed and everybody, and the parents cannot do anything about it. So please support Egypt with a lot of praying and <coughs> a lot of understanding. And if you have a chance to talk to one of the officials or the one of the people that, that are representing you in the Senate, or tell them, to, tell them their right story that they probably don't know about so that at least you can support your brothers and sisters in Egypt. I just want to thank you for your listening, and I uh, hope I got the message to you. Thank you. Thank you, Nader. Wow.